morning, everybody. Welcome. It's always great to open the Word of God with my home church. Um, really glad to have this passage. We are only going to look at two words together this morning, a wonderful and counselor. But uh, fear not, there is plenty in these two words to fill up our minds and uh, fill our hearts and uh, fill up our time. No, no, no worries there. So, these words are deep and wide. They are high and exalted. It's wonderful counselor. Together, they are one of the names of God. And in particular, they are one of the names of Jesus as God. So, we need to get just a little bit of a running start if we're going to jump up onto these two mighty words. Uh, so if we just back up a tiny bit from Isaiah 9-6, which is where we're going to be for four weeks, just drop back and remember the famous passage in Isaiah 7, verse 14. God makes his great promise through the prophet Isaiah to bad king Ahaz that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's a lot of expectation and wonder around this sign child whose arrival will prove that God keeps his promises and does not abandon his people. But if you fast forward about 700 years to Matthew 123, which is easy, you can just flip over there in your time machine Bible, um, we're told that this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And Matthew even translates for us the meaning of the sign child's name, Emmanuel. It means God with us. So call his name Emmanuel. So what's his name? All right. Thank you. 11 o'clock service. Uh, yes, and. Yes, they call his name Emmanuel, but they also call his name Jesus. If you're there in Matthew, just look at Matthew 121. An angel in a dream tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. And then in 125, Joseph, not being stupid, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and they called his name Jesus. So what's his name? Jesus. Always the right answer. Yes, and his personal name is Jesus, and his purpose name, the one that sums up the entire purpose of his coming to us, is Emmanuel, God with us. You can write down purpose name as like a technical term, but I just made that up this morning, so like don't, like don't do anything big with it, just see if it's helpful. So actually, uh, here in our passage, Isaiah 9, we are told one more time what his name shall be called. Actually, we're told four more times what his name shall be called. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So now we're up to half a dozen names. And of course, the Bible is filled with names for Jesus. One of um, Biola's founders, T.C. Horton, wrote a devotional book called Wonderful Names of Our Wonderful Lord. And like all good devotional books, it has 356 pages in it. So there are all those names for Jesus. Um, but I'm only pointing here this morning to the places where it literally says, his name shall be called, right? I mean, not nicknames, but like name names, you know, namey names, names that he shall be called. And we've got six of them here, four in our text. Beyond Emmanuel and Jesus, we've got four names that his name shall be called. In most translations, they are capitalized, so they stand out from the text as names. These four prophetic oracular names look forward to the Messiah and upward into the character of God. These are very important. They help us greatly by being specific and particular about who God is. 
it's really important for us to know God personally and intimately and also correctly and accurately. Unless we come to know his character as he actually reveals it in his word, we are in danger always of manipulating him and exploiting his name for our own purposes. So thank God for these descriptive, ear-catching, and even unusual names that draw us to his character and draw out for us what he is like. I want to give just one example of how humans can go wrong here if we don't tune our ears to God's self-revelation. The name God with us became a kind of a motto for the military culture of 19th century Germany. So all through World War I, soldiers had belt buckles that said, Gott mit uns, God with us in German. The motto continued to be popular even after the Nazi takeover of German culture. So a common military belt buckle in the Nazi uniform was a big metal buckle that said, Gott mit uns, God with us. And Nazi German military aggression grew and expanded, and that name went with it, invading and attacking all over the place. So it's a, it is a stark example of how these words, our words from Isaiah 7, our words from Matthew 1, can be badly twisted, misappropriated, and turned into a motto to support a very different plan for a very different kind of kingdom. It's terrible. But what can we say about Nazi Bible interpretation? We can say it's not the right way to read the Bible. Right? Okay, so I've established like a high and a low, and now we're going to like right down, right down the middle. Okay. What is the right way to read the Bible? To pay close attention to the actual meaning of God's self-revelation and to learn who he is from what he calls himself. So we're in the golden spot here. What we have before us for the next four weeks isn't just the familiar name Jesus or the purpose name God with us, but this series of names from Isaiah in which God tells us even more about his character. Jesus Emmanuel is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And this morning we want to apply ourselves really just to that first name, wonderful counselor. Jesus' name shall be called wonderful counselor. What does this mean? We're gonna climb this ladder with three steps. First. As wonderful counselor, Jesus gives amazingly good advice. Second, as wonderful counselor, Jesus has a gloriously great plan. And then third, as wonderful counselor, Jesus simply is eternally divine wisdom. So first, wonderful counselor means that Jesus gives amazingly good advice. I admit that good advice may sound like a strange thing to say that we get from Jesus, sort of like too small a thing or beside the point or faint praise considering who Jesus actually is. I mean, surely we get a lot more than just advice from the Lord. Advice sounds like weak, optional, take it or leave it, consider this. But Jesus is, after all, Lord, and God gives 10 commandments, not 10 suggestions, nor 10 highly recommended alternatives you might want to consider. Click here. But when I say good advice, I'm, I'm really just trying to paraphrase at a low level the basic meaning of the name. Advice is the most straightforward way to describe what a counselor gives you. It gives you counsel. That's a fancy word for advice. Jesus gives you counsel or advice. Now, it's not just any counsel. It's, it's strange to use that word, but it is set apart by the adjective. It is wonderful counsel. Wonderful counsel like miraculous, um, worth marveling at, 
It's jaw-dropping, astonishingly, astonishingly good, apt advice. As wonderful counselor, Jesus shows you how to live life the way it's supposed to be lived. And his insight into how to live life the right way is so keen and correct that it makes you say, golly, what a wonderful counselor. So here's, here's what it's like. I had a summer job one year printing t-shirts um, in, in South Carolina. It was hot. There was a furnace there for drying the t-shirt ink. And the main way you printed these t-shirts was to drag a squeegee across a screen. It's a form of serigraphy, we call it in art school. Um, and you, you push this viscous ink down through the screen and into the t-shirt. Into the and you got to get it right the first time. You don't get a do-over. you got to drag that squeegee and get all the ink into all of the shirt the whole time. If you mess it up, you can't go back because you put the screen back down. It clogs the screen. you got to clean the whole machine. It's a mess. So you just take the shirt off and throw it in the recycle pile if you blow it. Well, I was determined not to blow it. So for my first day on the job, I was watching closely doing quality control. When the ink wasn't quite globbing up right, I would, like, bear down on it and, like, ugh. In printing, there's a there's a motto: you can either print with um, you can either print with ink or print with force. Right? So like when you don't have enough ink, like just just lean on it. So you know, being sort of buff, I just I just like pushed down on that, and I was getting like good solid t-shirt impressions. But within an hour, I started thinking like I cannot do eight hours of this in the South Carolina heat next to a blast furnace. Like this is not. This is not going to happen. So I look across at the, the next station down, because we're printing like eight colors on one t-shirt. It was like a team. The, the guy across from me is a guy named Stan. Stan's a Polish immigrant, uh, recently arrived in America. Stan's working two jobs. I'm, I'm printing t-shirts by day and reading and having fun by night. Stan's washing dishes all night, getting whatever sleep he can, coming back and printing more shirts. Stan is saving money. And more importantly, Stan is saving energy. So eventually, Stan takes pity on me and comes over and lets me know uh, that I'm doing it wrong. Because I'm looking at Stan, and he's just over there going, whoop, whoop. I watch him again like, whoop, whoop. Well, that's, I, I would like to learn how to do that. So Stan comes over, and he tells me, Fred, all the time, so much pressure. Not so much pressure. Whoop, whoop. All the time, not so much pressure. I, I thought hard about his words. Like, he, he didn't speak much English. I didn't speak any Polish, so this is what I had to go with. Mainly, I just watched him for the next hour, and by, by golly, I figured it out. You could kind of hear it when it was right on the screen. There was a, was a little more high-pitched when you had a good connection, and uh, it's one of those things. It turns out it's all in the wrist, and occasionally you have to go straight down, but you never have to use all that force. So I got it figured out, survived the day, and had a wonderful career printing T-shirts all summer. Here's what I got from Stan. Uh, Stan was able to do the thing right and then communicate effectively to me, uh, broken English and all, how to do it, right? Um, turns out it's all in the wrist and your principle is not so much all the time pressure. Yeah, so thank you, Stan, a wonderful counselor. That's the image here with this name, wonderful counselor. Miraculously good advice that changes how you approach things. The thing Jesus is good at, though, is not t-shirt printing, but life itself. Specifically, life as a child of God. He's so good at it, and he's such a good teacher at it. So here you are, working away, making everything way too hard, not doing it very well, wearing yourself out, and Jesus says, Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. To put it in Stan language, give me that squeegee, learn from me, all the time, not so pressure. Again, it seems like a little t- too little to say about Jesus that he's good at life, um, or that he's got things figured out, or that he's got know-how. I agree that we would want to say more about him. For instance, we would want to say that he is mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, so stick around. We will say those things in the next three weeks. But we don't ever want to say less. We actually want to be confident that Jesus has know-how. He is amazingly good at the things that matter most. There's a story in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus is doing ministry in one of the towns, and the people respond to him this way. Mark 7.37 says, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He, he hath done all things well, King James. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's a great thing to notice, and you notice they pick up on the wonderful aspect of it. They are astonished at how well Jesus does things. The great 19th century blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby worked this line, Jesus doeth all things well, into one of her hymns. It's the one that starts, all the way my Savior leads me. Here's a little bit of the one verse. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know, whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. I saw someone online picking on Fanny Crosby the other day as being sappy and sentimental, and I was fixing to fight with them. Because, like, she's, she's the real deal. Jesus' know-how and ability to live the life of God's children is the foundation of his authority to be wonderful counselor. He's good at it, and he's good at teaching it. His followers are his disciples. Uh, that means they are his learners. Jesus put together basically a portable school community in which to receive his wonderful counsel, to take miraculously good advice from him, and to imitate him. The Christian life is fundamentally one of learning from the master. And here's maybe kind of the tricky part. We don't just learn from Jesus and take his advice because he became fully human and is good at being human, as an example to us. We also take his advice because he's God. In fact, in the Old Testament, so before the Incarnation, we see God giving wise counsel to his people. This is important. In addition to God commanding his people to obey him, he also reasons with his people and persuades them, gives them counsel about what would be the wise thing to do. Have you noticed this? In Isaiah 1, there's the famous line, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Like he's saying, be reasonable. Think about it. What actually is best for you? Aren't you tired of being foolish? Let's talk this over. In Isaiah 55, you can hear God putting the alternatives in front of his people. Why spend money for that which is not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest foods. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so your soul may live. So it's not just the incarnate one who wonderfully counsels us on how to live well. Wonderfully counseling is a divine thing to do. We think of the Old Testament as the law, and uh, you might know the Hebrew word for law is Torah, and that includes not only commands to obey, but instruction by which you are guided. In fact, that instruction is, is possibly the dominant element in it. Think about this. 
Why would God, who has absolute authority to give commands that should be obeyed, also bother to give counsel and advice that should be heeded, understood, accepted, and followed? I mean, why not just stick with the exercise of power and authority? The answer probably has something to do with God's character because he's not only powerful, but also wise. So he works toward us not only with authority, but also with wisdom. I think that if I had a toolkit that had in it almighty power and all uh, greatest wisdom, I would probably by default just go for the almighty power hammer all the time and think of everything as a nail. This is one reason you should be glad God is God and I am not, right? Um, but it's also, <laughs> yes, amen, thank you. <laughs> Got some support there uh, on my team, thank you. Uh, but the answer definitely has to do, whatever it has to say about God, it definitely has to do with what he's leading us into. That is to say, God counsels us because he wants us to understand. He wants to form hearts of wisdom within his people that reflect his own heart of wisdom. So try to hear it this way. Wisdom is a reality that runs deeper than authority. And by deeper, I mean it's more internal. It's more inside of you necessarily. Because authority could just be external. You could hear the command and obey the command with it not really making a footprint on anything but your conduct. But to receive wonderful counsel and understand it and act on it is necessarily to let it indwell you and form you from within. The seeds of God's own reasons for doing things a certain way germinate inside of your character and sprout in your conduct. That's what happens when you receive counsel. Now, just to clarify, when I say wisdom and understanding run deeper than power and authority, I do not mean that obedience is somehow a stage that you grow out of. That was, can you imagine? Like, oh, I used to obey God, but then I grew up. Um, now, that's ridiculous. The child of God never grows out of obedience. It's not a stage you pass through or leave behind. But while remaining obedient to God's righteous and authoritative commands, you do grow into understanding. In Jesus' own life, he did the work of the Father because he said, the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does. Here's a really limited illustration. When my kids were very little, I would sometimes unlock a door or take a knife out of a drawer without letting them see what I was doing. I would like intentionally position my body between the operation I was performing and their inquiring eyes because I wanted to do the thing for them, but I did not want them to know how to unlock that door or get out that knife. Now, it's a very temporary thing, because of course I'm also eager to see my children grow up and be able to have the judgment to open a door, take out that knife, do the right things with it. Um, but in the meantime, I was going to sort of like conceal things from them. Um, the more their good judgment grew, of course, the more I was eager for them to see how things worked. Well, God wants children who obey from the heart, from deep understanding. Of course, there are going to be times when God's will is clear, but we just can't see the reason for it. In those cases, the right thing to do is definitely to obey even where you don't fully understand. But there are also, side by side with that, day after day, chances to obey precisely by receiving God's wonderful counsel and by understanding why he wants what he wants and why it's best for us. This is pervasive. It's true in Isaiah, come let us reason together. It's true when the Messiah comes as the wonderful counselor, learn from me and find rest. And it's true in the school of Christian life that is the church. 
Paul advises the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, two plain practical applications of the fact that Jesus as um, the um, wonderful counselor gives miraculously good advice. First of all, if Jesus is the wonderful counselor, use him. Pray for insight. Ask him for ideas. Ask the wonderful counselor for miraculously good advice on what to do. Whether he gets it to you by lighting up a passage of scripture on the page or in your memory, or surrounding you with wiser friends, or actually having ideas come into your mind straight from God, ask him for advice. Get his help. I can testify in my own small way that he is faithful and generous. I have prayed for ideas, and I have received ideas. You know, you can, you can always say that was a coincidence. You're just an idea-having guy, idea-having kind of guy anyway. But I'm telling you, sometimes God really meets you in that moment of generosity in you. Start the day with no ideas, ask for ideas, and next thing you know, you're getting a drink of water and you think, Eureka, I, I, wow, and I just, I just had an idea. Then you take credit for it and forget God. No, no, you, you thank God for it. Okay. Um, don't worry. It, it does happen. I'm not going to, like, sign a contract with you that you will definitely get all of these answered, but God is there and God cares. And I, I want to say just don't worry that your needs are too small for God to notice. The true God is big enough to meet you in the small things, right? If God weren't so big, he'd be too big to meet you in the small things, if that's not too paradoxical. But like the true God is big enough to be there in the tiny stuff with you. He is the wonderful counselor who gives miraculously good advice. Second application. If Jesus is the wonderful counselor, use him above all others. I mean, we live in bewildering times and we all listen to all sorts of advice. Some of our biggest problems are made even worse by giving our attention to terrible advisors. I don't care if it's your news source, your social media feed, your favorite gossip buddies, or the subtle pull of your entertainment choices. Most of us could do a lot better at things if we would shut off some of these sources of bad counsel that we're tuned into. Bad advice is bad. How's that for a deep insight? But habitually putting yourself under the influence of bad advice is the worst, and it's your fault. <laughs> you, can't, you can't stop drive by bad advice, but like continuing to subscribe to it is on you. You may have had the experience of having lost contact with some friend for a while and then getting back in touch, only to find that they have been on a strange journey of transformation, radicalization, or reinvention. You know what I mean. It's been a shocking couple of years, socially and politically. When you run into someone who's had that kind of extreme makeover mental addition, your first instinct may be to ask them, who, who have you been listening to? Right? And it's usually the right question. We're all dialed into some set of sources for counsel, and some are better than others, and some are just rotten. Be careful, little ears, what you hear has an adult critical application. Think carefully about what counsel you take in. Some of us need to shut some of it off, unplug it, and back away. The point is we have a wonderful counselor and we need to keep our channels clear so we can devote ourselves to paying attention to his will and his wisdom. So use him above all others. I, I've been trying to think of the least unedifying way to tell this story, but um, 
when I was a fairly young child, my grandmother would take me, I don't know what to call it, but bar hopping. Um, and I would sit at the bar, which I'm sure is illegal, unethical, medically unsound, not advised, whatever. Um, and I would say funny things sometimes that I had been coached to say. I was kind of a little performance. And um, anyway, the uh, local magi would spot the young uh, child in the bar and like converge on me and share wisdom, right? I always think of this as like bar culture, like people say stuff in bars, who knows? Um, now it's kind of everywhere thanks to the internet, right? Like this kind of insane advice is just out there. You don't have to, you don't have to go to a bar to get this anymore. But I remember this one guy really clearly. Can't tell you his name anymore, but he, he said, young man, I'm not going to do the drunk guy imitation, uh, but he's, young man, there's good and there's bad. You know, there is right and there is wrong. There is ethical and the opposite of ethical. <laughs> there is like integrity and not integritude. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. You got to go pew, right down the middle between them. Right? That was, that was his advice. <laughs> that was this like dramatically set up word of wisdom that he was offering this, this uh, young man that he met. It is so important that I not take that counsel. Right? Like, it's on offer out there. It's like out there in the world. This was apparently his life philosophy. It's good to already have a wonderful counselor that you can go to because it gives you a little more oomph when you say, no, thank you. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, gives miraculously good advice. But the next point is that as the wonderful counselor, Jesus has a gloriously great plan. And here we lift our eyes from our own lives and begin to focus on him. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. That child is the central figure in a vast plan of salvation that God is working out. From Genesis to Revelation, God is directing all things toward a particular end, and all things in heaven and earth are centered around this great central figure. Now notice the shift in direction here. We've been talking about the wonderful counselor by considering how his wisdom and instruction impact our own lives. You might put it this way. We recalled the importance of including the wonderful counsel of Jesus in our own story, even giving it the primary place in our own story. That's good, and I stand by it. I certify that as good advice. But now we take the next step and recognize another depth to the name wonderful counselor. It means that Jesus Christ is the orchestrator, organizer, and central point of a great plan that includes all things in heaven and earth. His wonderful counsel doesn't just improve our lives. His wonderful counsel guides the world itself. You might say we've, we've talked about his wonderful counsel in us and its formative effect. Now we're actually looking at another implication of the name, wonderful counselor. His wonderful counsel is out there in the structure of the divine plan. It's how things are being moved by God. So now, I don't want to rush this or condemn the first step and hurry, hurry on to the next step too uh, you know, prematurely. Many people are living lives with no effective knowledge of the wonderful counselor who is Jesus. And when those people discover the reality of Jesus and let him into their story, it's revolutionary. I mean, for many people, that's the shape of salvation, right? opening up to the reality of Jesus, letting Jesus in, acknowledging him, taking him into account. One of the first things that you learn from him about, as he advises you, is about sin and forgiveness. So this is the shape of salvation. 
I, I strongly advise, let him into your life. But before long, there's another step. As you begin to get your bearings and take account of just who this is that you've let into your life, you realize he's huge. He's, he's high and lifted up. He's the main character, and you're not. At some point, you realize the real goal isn't so much Jesus getting into your life as it is you getting into Jesus' life. At first, you kind of accidentally thought he was part of your story, but gradually it dawns on you that you're part of his story. You orbit him, not vice versa. He is the center, and you are the satellite. Now, this is, again, truly revolutionary, precisely because of his wonderful counsel, his great and glorious plan is so vast and all-encompassing that there's room for everything in it, and everything has its appropriate place. What that means is your experience with Jesus becoming part of your life is still real. It's just that that experience is now taken up into a larger reality as you realize that, in fact, all the time you, you were becoming part of his life. The current was always flowing in a different, larger, more complex cycle than you had imagined. Recognizing this can be huge. It can feel as big as salvation itself, precisely because it sort of gives you back the true meaning of your salvation all over again. As I describe it this way, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened and you may know the great calling, the spiritual riches, and this mighty power of God incorporating you into the cosmic thing that he's doing in Christ. That's a prayer from the end of Ephesians 1, and it's a prayer specifically for people who are already Christians to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation come upon them so that they see the full depth and meaning of what they're in. Because here is what God is up to through this wonderful counselor. He is putting together a family and calling men and women everywhere to be a part of it. Brothers and sisters, and I can call you brothers and sisters because he is putting together a family and calling men and women everywhere to be a part of it. This is almost too big to talk about, and I wouldn't even try if it weren't so clear in the pages of Scripture. But let me just point out one key place where we can see the contours of this great plan. It's Ephesians 1, verses 8 through 10. I've got a few friends in the audience who just knew I was headed for Ephesians with this, with this point. Ephesians 1, verses 8 to 10, Paul talks about a grace, and here's the quote, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, um, I'm going to try to remain calm and just point out two things about this passage I just read. First, when Paul says God has a plan to unite all things, he means it in the most expansive and comprehensive sense. This little word plan here in Ephesians 1.10 could be translated an, e- an economy. Uh, like we used to talk about home economics, which would be like you've got this amount of money and this amount of time, and how do you make it all work out right? It's, it's like an economy. Or you could translate this word plan as dispensation, or um, a wise disposition of parts toward a totality, right? It's not just a clump of stuff. It's like very wisely designed and put together. You could, you could translate it a careful distribution of a complex whole or a bunch of other ways. It's that kind of plan, right? This is the plan to unite all things. That's that's what God's got going on here. And then this little word unite, this little word unite, a plan to unite. Unite could be translated to sum up or to gather together under one head. 
or uh, it has been translated to recapitulate, which sounds super awesome, right? Like, I, I mean, I want to be united, but I really want to be recapitulated, which is, um, uh, these are all good translations. Another one would be something like a really long translation would be, to place in a proper order dictated by a single overarching principle that makes sense of everything. You know, united, right? So God has a plan to unite all things in Christ. These are all good translations. So is plan to unite as long as like you get a little tingle or thrill when you say it and the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you think, I'm getting a little punchy about what's happening in this verse. Now, there is, of course, much more to say about this plan to unite. Every page of Scripture moves towards this fulfillment. In fact, if you want the full extended version of the true meaning of Christmas, then drop your security blanket and turn to Ephesians 1. This is what the angels in Luke's nativity story are singing about. They look down from heaven and the shepherds look up from earth and see the dawn of all things being brought together in heaven and earth under the headship of Christ in the fullness of time in God's plan to unite. Yeah? Okay, but the second thing I want to point out is how much this passage has to do with wonderful counsel. I don't know if you picked it up the first time. It has a lot to do with knowledge and understanding. Here's the first part again, Ephesians 1.8. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, dot, dot, dot. I'll stop there. Do you, do you see it there? Do you see how cognitive this is? Do you see how much this is a matter of the opening of the eyes to see and get insight into what God is doing in Christ? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, not just because he brings miraculously good advice into my life story, but because he gives meaningful shape and coherent content to this gigantic story of all things in heaven and earth being brought together under his authority by his wisdom to the praise of the glory of his grace. Remember we said Jesus' followers are learners, called to follow the master around in a portable school, taking lessons from him. He taught them many things, including, let's admit it, some miraculously good tips for how to catch fish, right? But the goal of his instruction, though it included some fish, was always to move them along to the great lesson which they could only grasp after his death and resurrection. After he rose, he met two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says at the end of Luke, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened the scriptures, he opened their eyes, and they knew him for who he was, the plan of God in person. The head under whom all things in heaven and earth would be reconciled, the one the prophets looked forward to. He had this great plan in mind from the beginning of their instruction, and he wisely, gently, at the right time, moved his disciples along until they could grasp it until they could grasp him as who he really was, as the wonderful counselor who gives meaning to the long course of world history and who explains and expounds that meaning. Now, I barely have a practical application for this point because it's just everything. But here's one implication. I would say get out of your own story and into Jesus' story as quickly and completely as possible. Like, he will meet you where you are come to you and make, sense of your, uh, and make sense of your little life with his miraculously good advice. 
But that is just phase one of a much broader program on the curriculum of this greatest teacher. Healthy growth means turning your attention to something bigger than your own life, and that is his life. Here's a faint illustration. When Susan and I lived in Berkeley, um, we got to have Bible studies uh, one morning a week with a significantly older couple. I mean, we were just babies back then 20 years ago, but this was a couple who'd, you know, been through a lot, and we would study the Gospel of John with them, and we would also share prayer requests and tell them what we were going through and get some advice from them. Um, And I don't remember what issue we were describing one day, but we were just really kind of worked up about something, kind of laid it all out. It's like, here's, here's what we're worried about, but what if this and what if that? And oh, it's all really so, so complex. And um, they listened and probably wrote it down on their prayer list. And, and then Kathy, the wife of the couple, said, um, she got kind of a faraway look in her eyes and said, yeah, I remember when we thought that was important too. <laughs> so I felt loved, you know, not in a... Not in a warm, huggy kind of a way, but I, I, I registered that was real affection. Um, and it was also perspective, right? It was, it was also someone who could really understand that this mattered to me and offer me a broader view of um, what this would look like with a little more experience under my belt. It's a, even a worse illustration, maybe. It's a tiny bit like when a kid is just utterly devastated by some minor thing that's gone wrong with some toy that you know you can fix, right? Like on the one hand, boy, they are really suffering and I'm gonna be there with them and wipe their nose and dry their eyes and give them a graham cracker Uh, or whatever you do. I'm not the children's ministry expert, but um, on the other hand, you also are able to have this higher view of perspective, right? And that's what we need from our wonderful counselor and he, he definitely brings it, both the compassion and care and the gift of perspective to move us along. Um, Another great thing he brings is that perspective. Your little things do have a place, but they are not the whole horizon, thank God. And when you're right in the middle of it, it can seem like the horizon. Those little problems are not the horizon. God is the whole horizon. And that brings us to the third and final meaning of wonderful counselor. Jesus as wonderful counselor is eternally divine wisdom. Now, this will be my shortest point, but it is by far the largest subject. I mean, we just talked about the great comprehensive plan to place all things under Christ. I mean, we really covered life, the universe, and everything as seen from Ephesians the best we could. I can only think of one thing larger than that, and it's not a thing. It's it's God, right? God is greater. Even if the great plan is shot through with bright gleams of the wisdom that made it, and it is, Nevertheless, the wisdom that made the plan is greater than the plan that wisdom made. Above and beyond the whole cosmic history of creation and fall and redemption and glorification, there is God. The the God who Isaiah saw in his vision in chapter 6, high and lifted up, enthroned, praised by seraphim who cry, holy, holy, holy. In Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah calls the Lord of hosts, listen to this, Wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom is the Lord of hosts. And that's the reason why we can't be done exploring the name Wonderful Counselor until we glimpse a little bit of what it means for God. I mean, we know that Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor toward us. He is the personal present. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, he is the source of amazingly good advice to us. But he's also the Wonderful Counselor toward God. He is the personal presence of God's own wisdom within God's own life. In chapter 28, we have the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel, 
And in chapter 9, we have the son whose name shall be Wonderful Counselor. So there's a lot we could say here about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God, uh, the triune God of Israel, but who, the Father, Son, and Spirit who do not reveal themselves as distinctly and clearly under conditions of the Old Covenant as they do in the New. But here's what we can say. When the one wise God is being wise, he's being wise with wisdom that is always already within him. So Isaiah asks in chapter 40, chapter 40, verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or informed him as his counselor? Who who is God's counselor? In Isaiah 40, it's a rhetorical question implying the answer, nobody, right? As in, God doesn't need outside guidance or advice. And if God hasn't told you anything about his internal guidance and advice, be quiet about it. Secret things belong to the Lord. But this rhetorical question in Isaiah 40 is picked up by the apostles, notably by Paul, who quotes it, who counsels the Lord, and then on New Testament grounds answers it, we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. It's a a real Christ-centered answer in the New Testament to a rhetorical question from the Old Testament. All I want to indicate here is that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and that's why as readers of the New Testament, we can reverently answer Isaiah's question about who has informed God as his counselor, the eternal son who was always with the Father in the Spirit as the Trinity. He has eternally been the wonderful counselor of the Father, and they inseparably have done all things wisely. When God behaves wisely, he doesn't go out and fetch some wisdom or grow into it. God's wisdom is with God, and it is God. You might recognize there are the first verses of John's gospel where he makes this point using the word, word. The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And they called his name Jesus, and his name was called Emmanuel. And his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, you've seen the three things we've looked at. The Wonderful Counselor toward us, the Wonderful Counselor in the structure of God's plan, and the Wonderful Counselor, finally, towards God in the very life of God. Isaiah is very bold and sees very far. He teaches us wonderful things about the wonderful counselor whose messianic arrival or advent lay 700 years in his future. We celebrate that arrival 2,000 years, uh, which was 2,000 years in our past. But just as much as Isaiah or any prophet um, to the Old Testament people of God, we too look forward to the return of that wonderful counselor. We have and we rejoice in the indwelling Holy Spirit the spirit of wisdom and counsel, Isaiah 11, who is our other comforter or advocate given to us by the Father and the Son. We have that spirit, but we long and pray for the return of Christ in person, for the return of wisdom incarnate, for the direct presence of our wonderful counselor. We wait for wisdom. And that's why we can sing the words of the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which has that one verse about our counselor. O come thou wisdom from on high, who orders all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go.
Let's pray. O oh God, immortal, invisible, and the only wise God, we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts, Father. We thank you for giving your Son, our Lord, to be our wonderful counselor. Open up our eyes and make us alert, alive, and awake to the wisdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.